0: everyone in india and uh, good morning to, to the u.s audience and we have got robert spencer today along with shri vibhuti jha this is our wednesday show working this time on thursday because maybe we were not able to host it for some reason and uh, welcome robert how are you doing very good uh, thank
1: you good to see you both Thank you.
0: Welcome, Bibhuti Ji. How are you doing? Namaste. namaste. Let you. me start straight away. My question goes to Robert. And of course, we both will be in the question mode today because uh, Robert <laughs> is the only one <laughs> fielding the questions. So you're coming out with a new book. It's called The Critical Quran.
1: Yes, I, I happen to have one right here. Uh, the uh, Critical Quran is... Available for pre-order now at Amazon. It is listed at Amazon India. I do not think it is available for pre-order there. I'm not sure. Uh, It wasn't the last time I looked a few days ago. But it will be available May 3rd. And it should be available in India soon after that. Uh, It's uh, always difficult for various reasons. And uh, many people have told me they would like to see Hindi editions. I would love to see that. But uh, if you know translators and publishers who are interested, please let me know. In the meantime, the critical Quran is, in the first place, a clear and honest translation of the Quran. Many translations of the Quran into English are, I believe, deliberately intended to obfuscate, to obscure what the Quran says rather than to illuminate it, particularly on the passages that are most problematic for non-Muslims. And so the critical Qur'an makes them exactly clear. For example, one of the things that almost all the English translations do, actually all of them that I know of, is translate jihad as struggle or strive. And so when the Qur'an says to jihadah, to wage jihad in the name of Allah, Most of the English translations say strive hard in the way of Allah. So the English speaking non-Muslim thinks strive hard in the way of Allah. That means be more religious, pray, be nice to people and so on. And they don't realize that this in Islamic theology refers specifically to warfare against non-Muslims. And so this Quran says wage jihad in the name of Allah. So people will understand that that's what the Arabic says and that this is what is understood by it is made clear by the commentary which comes from the mainstream Islamic commentators on the Quran, explaining how these passages are understood by ordinary Muslims when they try to study the Quran, because these are the same commentators they go to. Also, it has variant readings in it. Islamic apologists claim that every copy of the Quran is exactly the same as every other copy. I don't know if you've heard this, but this is a very common have. Yeah, you know, and it's supposed to be a sign of the miraculous uh, protection of the text by Allah, and a sign that the Quran is really from Allah, and that there isn't a law for it to come from. But in reality, there are many variations in the text. Most of them are very minor, but even the slightest variation contradicts what these apologists say. And so, in this Quran, for the first time, I'm listing the variation and showing how there are divergences within the text and it's not like what we have been told
0: and what about the chronology because one of the most problematic things about the quran is that uh, it's not in a chronological order and yes. you have to read it along with their exegesis yes that unless you have a knowledge of the hadith and the Sirah, you just can't uh, understand what is written It's it's actually uh, completely unintelligible if you are reading the Quran without uh, having any idea of the history of the Arabia of that time and uh, the, the the traditions that is the Hadith
1: Yes, you're quite right and this is uh, something that most people don't realize because any time a non-Muslim quotes the Quran in a manner that's inconvenient for Muslims then an Islamic apologist will say you're quoting it out of context And yet, when you read the Qur'an, one of the things that becomes immediately obvious is that there's no context, that these things are said without any explanation of the circumstances in which they are being said. And for the most part, you have no idea what's going on unless, as you say, you go to the commentaries and study the history. So the critical Qur'an has all that in there. And you can understand the chronology, the context, the history, everything. It's in the notes, right there on the page. And so it's an aid to understanding the Quran as you read.
0: Yeah, so for instance, uh, I'll just take one example, which is uh, the most common apology that is offered. Uh, two very common apologies are offered. And one is uh, your religion for you my religion for me. That is the Surah 107, that, uh, what is called the Al-Khafirun. And the other one is that Surah Al-Baqarah 256 that it says that there is no compulsion in religion. So uh, these are the commonest apologies or uh, being the communist apologies. I guess you must have dealt with these in detail in your uh, critical Quran. How have yeah. you dealt with these?
1: Absolutely. Well, let's go to uh, I have it here and we'll go to Chapter 2 Surah Al-Baqarah verse 256. And uh, I note. In the, in the footnote it says, Islamic spokesmen in the West frequently quote this verse to disprove the contention that Islam spread by the sword. Actually, I shouldn't have said in the West. I'll try to change that in the next uh, because they say,
0: <laughs> yes, they say that everywhere.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And so in the first place, I note that according to an early Muslim, Mujahid ibn Jabir, this verse was abrogated by chapter 9, verse 29, in which the Muslims are commanded to fight against the people of the book. And then I go on to explain other understandings of it and uh, the imperative to fight that is considered to be paramount in the Quran, which is chapter 2, verse 193, and also echoed in chapter 8, verse 39, that Muslims must fight until religion is all for Allah. And so how can there be no compulsion in religion if you're going to keep fighting until religion is all for Allah? If religion is all for Allah, then you're going to have to force some people to make their religion for Allah. And that means no, there is compulsion in religion. And actually, in practice, we see this because there is compulsion in religion. Obviously, forced conversion is something that many Muslims engage in on a regular basis. And they justify this by <laughs> claiming that it's not forced. And so, for example, years ago, there were two Fox News reporters, actually a reporter and a photographer, uh, Steve Chentani and Olaf Wieg, who were captured by jihadis. Uh, And they were, they converted to Islam. And there was a video made in which they were saying, with the gun pointed to their heads, they're saying, we were not forced to do this. (laughs) it's true the the people who made the video probably didn't realize the comic irony of what they were saying they probably thought well of course they have a choice they could have chosen to die but instead they chose to go and so they had a choice there was no compulsion
0: okay so before we proceed further let me ask all the viewers please uh, send your questions keep sending your questions while we are talking uh, for robert so that uh, at the end of our discussion, he can take your questions. And also, new viewers, please subscribe. And all those watching, please like the video. Now, uh, while we are on 256, uh, I'm I just supporting you in the sense that uh, they s- uh, say that you're quoting it out of context. They tell us when we quote it. But you read 254. 254 says that every unbeliever is an oppressor. Then you go to 255, that is the Ayat al-Kursi, which says yes. that none except Allah has the right to be worshipped. And then in 256, I have Piktal's translation before me. And uh, I, I, I just read from Piktol's translation in English. So there is no compulsion in religion. Now, what follows within this uh, the Ayat? Uh, the right direction is henceforth distinct from error. And he who rejecteth false deities and believeth in Allah had grasped a firm handhold which will never break. In fact, the Arabic term that is used is Taghut. And Taghut means the, the, the worst criminal, bigger than uh, a kafir. So uh, I, I don't know what is out of context. In fact, that particular sentence uh, 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 that is, uh, there is no compulsion in religion. That stands out as completely out of context.
1: Yes, that's right. It doesn't go with the rest of it, and that's something that I point out all through the Quran. That if you, the reader is attentive, then there are numerous passages that don't fit with the rest, the flow of what is being said, and it's very clear all through the book that there are interpolations and edits, and all manner of changes, such that the uh, final product is in many areas completely incoherent. Also, I can note you pointed out Taghut, and Taghut is not even an Arabic word. It's an Ethiopic word. And
0: oh, I didn't know that. Oh.
1: That's right. It uh, According to the Tafsir al-Jalalayn, it means shaitan, or idols, and can be singular or plural. But it's act- that's actually a, an exegesis that's based on conjecture. Because being an Ethiopic import from Arabic, the Muslims don't actually know what it means. And many, many words in the Quran are not Arabic and are assigned meanings by the commentators, like the two Jalals, the tafsir al-Jalaline, and those meanings are not based on the meaning of the word or the pre-Quranic usage of the word, they're only just based on the consensus of the Islamic scholars. And so this is also something that I bring out in the critical Quran, that it's supposed to be a book in pure Arabic and it's not in pure Arabic. And it's supposed to be a book that is clear and it's anything but clear in many passages.
0: Yeah, quite right. And uh, yes, of course. And then 107, that famous that says that uh, okay for you for your religion and for me my religion but nobody talks about the context that is given in the Sira as yes. to in what context it was said and it is not a tolerant verse in fact it is the most intolerant verse and uh, actually when the quraysh uh, offered them that uh, okay let's respect each other and he said no that is the context
1: exactly and uh, I have to note, I, b- I believe it's Surah 109 that you're referring to, al Kafirun. But yeah, al yeah, in- yeah,
0: Kafirun. Sorry, yeah. And
1: uh, it's worth noting also that Muhammad says, I have been commanded to fight against people until they confess that there's no God but Allah and I'm his messenger. And so, will, whatever statement, whatever the meaning may be of 109, that uh, you, you have your religion and I have mine, it does not mean. That there's that the muslims are not going to fight against those who are not muslim and try to forcibly incorporate them within the realm of islam
0: okay so one more question from me before i uh, ask vibhuti Jaji to ask his questions and that is that uh, the topic today is a solution for islamic jihad and uh, you have your uh, website uh, jihadwatch.org running for such a long time and giving all the details of all the happenings that are going on Uh, how do we find a solution does your book help in that direction or is there something more that we need to do Uh, are there any uh, instances where defeating the narrative of islam has uh, provided a solution in history or is it only the Spanish and the Chinese lessons?
1: Uh, well, I certainly, I can't, uh, I'm not going to endorse the uh, what the Chinese government is doing now. If uh, you're going to be just as repressive and violent as the jihadis, then it's not, the, uh, what's the point of fighting against them? But <clears throat> there is a you deal know, that can be done. In the first place, I have to say, unfortunately, there's no solution. But there is managing the problem. A solution would involve everyone leaving Islam, which is not likely to happen. As long as there are people who believe in the Quran and in Muhammad, there will be jihad, because the Quran and Muhammad teach jihad. And so what needs to be done, however, you're absolutely right, is raise awareness in the first place that the Quran and Muhammad teach jihad. I wrote the history of jihad in order to try to raise awareness of the fact that for 1400 years, there's been jihad without any pause, without any let up all over the world. And so people think that it's a modern problem or people think that there were periods of tolerance and peace, this is false. I wrote the truth about Muhammad so people would understand that the Islamic texts about Muhammad teach violence and that Muslims who imitate Muhammad are going to be violent, and now I have the critical Quran to teach people that the Quran itself teaches violence and warfare against unbelievers. Now, understanding these three things, the scripture, the tradition, and the history of Islam, will go a great, a great, do a great deal to help people to realize what we're dealing with, because the biggest problem we have right now is not even the jihad it is our political leaders who deny that there is any jihad or any problem at all. And as a result of their denial, they are allowing the jihadis to advance in all manner of ways. And this is not just the violent jihadis, but the stealth jihadis as well. Those who are advancing the same goal to impose Islamic law, Sharia, upon non-Muslim political entities by peaceful, non-violent means. And this happens all over the world. One of the main ways this happens, as a matter of fact, is by the stigmatization and the demonization of those who speak about this honestly. So that they can say, oh, uh, the three of us here, we're not worth listening to because we're racists and bigots and, and, and Islamophobes. And this kind of name calling, as vapid and empty as it is, is extremely effective in intimidating people in both people are afraid to speak out because they're afraid to be defamed in the same way. and people are afraid to listen to us because they are afraid that they we are uh, engaging in something that is hateful or forbidden or evil in some way. And uh, so the the first thing that we need to work on is to break through that and to raise awareness of it. The only way to do that, is to keep telling the truth. It's really a very simple pro- process because these things are true every day. The reality is is there every day. Especially in India today with so much jihad activity, there's so much news that proves that there is a problem with Islam. And then I see of course there's there's so much lying about it and even the latest riots, people are saying that the, the the Hindus were the perpetrators and so on. All we can do is keep telling the truth and keep bringing evidence. And more and more people will wake up to the reality. Uh, as far as managing the problem also, one of the foremost things we have to do is make sure that there is one law for everyone in the country, one single system of laws, and that there are no special privileges or special groups that obey different laws. And this is something, of course, it's an extreme controversy right now. In India, it shouldn't be, because it's the basis of any free society, that there are no privileged groups, that everyone is subject to the same laws and the same accountability. Of course, that's theoretically the case in the United States, but not really the case. And this is one of the problems, that it's hard to call upon countries to adopt a system that isn't even working where it's supposedly adopted. But that's because of the deep and endemic corruption that prevails in the political class today worldwide.
0: Quite right. Uh, Vibhuti ji?
2: Yes, it is fascinating to hear you, Robert, and uh, Sanjay ji, illuminating all of us and educating all of us. So we are talking about solution. And there has to be, if there is a problem, there has to be a solution. So I would say if if all the Muslims don't leave Islam, the problem is not going to happen. But there is a thing called Albert Einstein said, any intelligent fool can complicate a simple problem. We have to move in the other, it, it takes courage to move in the other direction. So I'll take the cue from here is let's break down the problem into social technology driven by technology, economics, and politics. And if we prioritize the problem of each one of these areas, then we can begin to probably attend to the solution. So like, for example, non-believer, kill, convert to Islam. But which Islam? Shia, Sunni, Ahmadiyya, Aga Khani? Which, which, Which one is the preferred one? And what is the guarantee that Shia and Ahmadiyyas will not kill each other or Sunnis will not kill each other? So let us, let's ask them this question. So if I want to convert to Islam, which part of Islam do I convert to? Let them give us the answer. The other element also is very important to breaking down the problem. There's a halal economics, economics of halal. How do we address to that? Nowadays, you would notice that even, forget the, forget the goat meat or beef. Even vegetables, rice, pulses, everything has to be marked as halal. Where did that come from? How did open societies like ours surrendered or gave to that, to that insidious penetration of our economic system? So these are issues that if we break it into social, technology, economics, and politics, we may begin to find solutions in each one of these areas, and because all of them are connected, we may begin to address problems with everywhere. So first of all, what do you think, Robert? My question to you is, how do we use technology to propagate, as you have done the book, to disseminate the message, create awareness, and the plan to act?
1: Well, we're doing it right now, aren't we? Uh, We're discussing these issues, You're not gonna find discussion of these issues in many other fora. And so many people will hear about these things because we're discussing them. And then many others will take up this discussion. This is the use of technology to spread the truth. Uh, But your points are very well taken and very important. And one of them about halal I wanted to comment on uh, this is exactly what I'm referring to when I say we need to enforce one law for all. It's an extraordinary situation that so many things are labeled halal that have nothing to do with halal, as you noted. Vegetables, even even chocolate is, is labeled halal. Uh, these things have nothing to do with Islamic food laws whatsoever. They have to do with the food companies paying a kickback To Islamic groups that certify for halal so that they don't get protested as Islamophobic. Meanwhile, in the United States, I can give you an example. Years ago, there was a controversy over the discovery that meat was being sold in the United States that was halal that was not labeled as such. And Pamela Geller and I actually traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with officials of the Food and Drug Administration in Washington. And we asked them to begin to label food halal so that people would know if they didn't want to buy it. Because obviously if there's meat out there that's halal and people don't want to support the halal industry, they don't know what's halal and what isn't. And they put us on. We had a long meeting, and they assured us they would study the issue. And then we never heard from anyone again. And they have been unresponsive to all our requests for years about it. And the the halal meat is still not labeled halal. Now, if there were one standard for all citizens and for all groups, this kind of thing would not happen. If the meat were labeled halal, then those who wanted the halal meat would be able to have it. And those who didn't want the halal meat would be able to to avoid it. But there is not one standard for all groups. There there is a privileged status for the Islamic groups that is not recognized in law and is not even officially acknowledged by the officials who are enforcing it. But it's there. And so once we uh, bring it out in the open, perhaps we might be able at some point to get sympathetic officials who will change this. But there are a thousand examples of this kind all over where Muslims are granted special privileges in a, in, a, in a subtle and tacit way that is not publicly acknowledged. And most people aren't even aware that it exists in order to prevent unrest and the protests and the, the, the strife that would come from Muslims claiming they're being discriminated against. And actually, that claim of discrimination is another arena in which Islamic groups around the world have made tremendous gains and been able to establish special privileges. We have to remember that Islamic law grants a status to Muslims above those, that, the status of non-Muslims. And so there are always pushes for special privileges and special accommodation that first we have to realize as such. But this is a very large problem. And it's an comprehensive, multifaceted international problem with most of the governing officials in most countries not aware of it or ready to accommodate the Islamic groups. So even just beginning to call attention to that is at least one step forward.
2: As a follow up, I just wanted to check with you one more thing. You alluded to that already, that in the law, they are accorded. A somewhat higher accommodation than the than the non-muslims but why is it that the west and the various democracies the leadership is bending backwards to accommodate islam even rss chief in india talks about same dna theory but the same dna thing applies to the entire humanity all life forms so why is it so that nations and countries are bending backwards to accommodate a very belligerent belief system where radicalization is so rampant in their beliefs. There's no argument, there's no discussion. The freedom of speech dies because you can't even question, make an inquiry. Freedom of speech is not about you and I talking, it's about making an inquiry, which is at the root of all inventions, discoveries, innovations or improvements in life. What is it that drives the entire West democracies bending backwards to accommodate such a belligerent belief system
1: in the united states today there is and of course all around the world to to varying degrees but in the u.s right now there is tremendous strife and trauma about racism now racism is officially against the law it is forbidden to discriminate on the basis of race or religion or gender, etc. However, there is the claim from the left that America is riddled riddled with systemic racism. That the very ways in which various things operate is inherently racist and gives advantage to uh, white people. This is nonsense, but nonetheless. On the basis of this claim, the claim, the further claim is advanced that various victimized groups, groups that have suffered because of this supposed systemic racism, need special accommodation and special consideration in order to uh, be to achieve equity with the whites. Consequently, various groups are given special privileges and accommodations. The Islamic groups in the United States have very skillfully played on this controversy and America's national trauma about racism going back in its history. They have portrayed Islam as a racial group, even though Islam is not a race and Muslims are of all races. And as a racial group, they have been able to claim that they're discriminated against and harassed in the United States in a unique way, which is not true. The FBI publishes hate crime statistics every year, and Jews are victimized far more often than any other group, and Muslims are always, year after year, way down on the list. No hate crime is justified, but to claim that Muslims are suffering some immense uh, discrimination in the United States is, is, is politically motivated propaganda, and not fact. But on that basis, they're able to lay hold of all manner of special accommodation. And this includes even in regard to counterterror efforts. For example, New York City for years operated a very effective program that stopped several jihad plots that involved surveillance in Muslim communities. Now, why didn't they conduct surveillance in Hindu communities? Why didn't they conduct surveillance in Jewish communities? Because There was no terrorism coming out of those communities. There was terrorism in the Muslim communities, and that's why the surveillance was there. But the Muslims were able to claim that they were victims of racism and Islamophobia, and they got the program ended. This kind of thing has happened all over the country. And so why do officials seem to accommodate this problem and not deal with it? Because they're terribly afraid of being called racist. And terribly afraid of being called Islamophobic. And that indeed would be the end of their careers. And so you look at, for example, the rape gangs in, Indi- in, in England, excuse me, in England, there were thousands of British girls, thousands, who were victimized by gangs of rapists from Pakistan, Pakistani Muslims who emigrated to England and they began to rape non Muslim girls on a massive scale, on an industrial scale, thousands of girls. And they did it, some of them would quote the Quran and explain to the girls that they were doing it because the Quran allows infidel women to be used in this way. British authorities did nothing. They were afraid of being called racist and Islamophobic. Tommy Robinson called attention to it and he was excoriated by the leftist groups, hope not hate and so on, as being racist and Islamophobic. He's still persecuted by the british government for calling attention to this they wanted to let it all happen for the sake of their fantasies about a diverse multicultural society and this is why the jihad is advanced so far into the west because officials are more afraid of being called racist than they are of actually confronting the muslim community
0: Right. And uh, you talked about racism. Now, I have this uh, uh, coming from the what is called the backward Muslim groups with whom I interact a lot. And according to them, they quote this verse, which was actually uh, recited by Abu Bakr at the time of uh, succession when. Uh, Prophet lay dying and uh, a great clash ensued in which the Ansars of the Medina, they claimed an equal share. At that time, this verse was cited by Abu Bakr that okay, that uh, when he was asked to lead the prayer, at that time, Muhammad said, Abu Bakr killing the Ansars, uh, that uh, leaders can only be from Quraysh, Al-Immatu. Min Khorash. so that uh, leaders can only be from Khorash. So that is the biggest. We have what is this called? This doctrine of uh, Kufu, which uh, at least in the Indian Islam, the largest branch that is the Hanfi Islam, this is the called the doctrine of Kufu. Kufu means equality, but actually it is a doctrine of inequality, and the doctrine of inequality lays down very strict rules that says that, okay, only certain people can marry, intermarry, and Arabs are the superior class. And it, till today in India, we have the, the certain classes, the, the Sayyids, the Sheikhs, the patans, the Mughals, uh, as the, they, they call them uh, Ashraf, that is Sharif, you know, that is the, sh- sh- Sharif means what? Noble. So these are the noble classes. And it's laid down as a doctrine. Whereas everybody excoriates uh, the Hindu saying that, okay, you have so much of uh, uh, discrimination, this and that. But that, wherever it exists, is only behavioral. There is no scripture within the Hindu pantheon that supports it. And here is the scriptural reference, the scriptural authority within Islam that supports racism, totally and completely. And yet anybody who calls it out is called a racist himself.
1: You're quite right. This is very important. Islam is a vehicle for Arab supremacism. And people yes. don't realize this, but it's really pl- as plain as anything is, as plain as the sun in the sky, that Islam is a vehicle for Arab supremacism. For example, think about the fact that there are Sayyids in India and Pakistan. These are people who claim to be descendants of Muhammad. In Iran, the mullahs who run the country, the ones who were descended from Muhammad wear black turbans, and the other ones wear white turbans. And the black turban is a sign that you're descended from Muhammad. Now, how likely is it that there are a large number of people in, in Central Asia who were descended from this Arab, from Arabia, who never left Arabia in, in his lifetime? If he existed at all, but that's another question, and
0: yes. <laughs> that's 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 a bit, that's a question that is being
1: discussed a lot these days. Yes. <laughs> and he has relatives all over places. He's never he was never even close to it. Of course, it's obvious that many people have claimed to be descended from Muhammad for various political reasons to gain advantage in the Muslim societies in which <laughs> they live. Even uh, the Caliph of the Islamic State. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi claimed to be a member of the Quraysh tribe for the reason you mentioned—that Abu Bakr said the leader has to be a Qurayshi. So here is this Iraqi who's never set foot in Arabia. Now, of course, I understand people travel, and 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 there's a lot of movement of peoples throughout history. So it's not it's not absolutely impossible that al-Baghdadi was really a Qurayshi, but it's much more likely that he took the he he made the claim in order to be able to lay hold of the caliphate, because that's a prerequisite for being the caliph, And even more than that, for example, a few years back I saw a meeting of the foreign ministers of the countries of Southeast Asia. And there they were all in a row. And I looked at their names. And the gentleman from Vietnam had a Vietnamese name. And the gentleman from Thailand had a Thai name. And the gentleman from China had a Chinese name and so on. And then the gentleman from Indonesia had an Arab name. And he probably has, no, has never thought about the fact that his, his name, his culture, they're not indigenous to Indonesia any more than they are to uh, Malaysia or to India or to Pakistan or Afghanistan. But it's an import from the Arabian Peninsula or a little farther north. And why is it incumbent upon converts to change their name to an Arab name? Why did the famous boxer Cassius Clay become Muhammad Ali when he became a Muslim? Well, he he was not an Arab. But Islam is a vehicle for Arab supremacism, and it teaches that the Arabs are superior. There is still slavery in Islam because. Islam teaches that the non-Arab Muslims are lesser. And in North Africa, they're still enslaved, many of them. This is something that uh, is not discussed and is not generally known. But there is a very strong preference for Arabs and Arabia, Arabness in Islam. And it is probably a more racist and stratified system than any other that exists in the world today
0: okay before we move to the audience questions uh, here's uh, my last question to robert we find that there is a very big movement of apostates and uh, people who are turning away from islam and uh, becoming atheist a lot of them uh, uh, embracing other religions as well in india we see this phenomenon of course uh, very small in number uh, at this point but uh, people have become atheists people have become hindus and uh, in the west a lot of people have become christians but uh, uh, the kind of discussions they are having i find that it is creating quite a ferment <clears throat> and it is exposing Islam in a very big way. Do you think that this approach has a future?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is very important. Of course, there are varieties of ex-Muslims. Some courageous ex-Muslims such as Ibn Warak, uh, Noni Darwish, Wafa Sultan have done very important work and continue to do so. Other ex-Muslims uh, retain so much of their Islamic attitudes. That uh, they maintain a hostility toward other non Muslim groups and even to critics of Islam who have never been Muslims. Like uh, I include in this group Ali Rizvi, Abdullah Samir, people like that. They're not really any use. They're, they're, they're more useful to the uh, jihadis than they are to non Muslims. Uh, but there is a growing awareness among ex-Muslims. I mean, there is a growing movement of ex-Muslims, many of whom are doing excellent work to challenge and criticize the beliefs and assumptions of Muslims. And this is very important to, because, for example, the non-Muslim governments of the world, many of them are placing great hope on de-radicalization programs. And these are based on the idea that Islam is a religion of peace. And they will teach yes. the jihadis. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. They'll teach the jihadis the true peaceful Quran, and then everything will be okay. And of course, the jihadis laugh at this because they know what's in the Quran and they know it's not peaceful. And they know this whole thing is a charade. The governments of the world do not have the courage to actually try to disabuse the jihadis of their Islamic beliefs altogether. But that is the real effective way to make a jihadi not a jihadi. Even Musa Sarantonio the other day, uh, uh, a, an Australian non-Muslim who became a Muslim, became an ISIS leader, and he left Islam now. He realizes, he said, the Quran is plagiarized. If What if our governments were telling people, telling jihadis that they're trying to de-radicalize, that uh, the Quran is plagiarized, that the Quran... Is, is full of non-Arabic words, that the Quran is it doesn't make any sense in many places, that the Quran is all these other things that uh, it's, are true about it, then that would stop the jihadis. And so, yes, the ex-Muslim movement is very important insofar as the ex-Muslims are not just backhanded apologists for Islam.
2: If I may, I push, to... in my, if, if I may push in my one last question for you, Robert, here okay. it would be driven by one particular fact that our freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry is being curtailed. Islamophobia bill is one such example. We now know their true intent. They want to shut us up. You can't question anything. It will be termed as propaganda and incitement. And then we need to go through an education process to rehabilitate us, you know, how do we contest that in our political system which is very important because if we can't demand reciprocity then nothing will is going to happen we are we are way too humble one of the things is that they are radicalized already we are pumping money into de-radicalization and they laugh at us you rightly said so. so the question here again is if we are able to break down the entire process into social economic, politics, and te- driven by technology, where do we need to make our first push? If I may say Priorit- prioritizing, where do we need to do that?
1: I need, yeah, think we they need are
2: clearly possible. using our system against us.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. And so we need to press their own contradictions because in the first place, it's not a fair fight and they are trying to shut us up. And so we can be as reasonable as the day is long and be as fact-based and have all the information on our side, it's not going to make any difference because they are not playing on a rational playing field. However, if we press their contradictions, then their hypocrisy starts to become clear, and then their whole house of cards is vulnerable. For example, they claim to be feminists and that they care for women's rights, and yet one of the most oppressive systems for women in the world, if not the most oppressive, is Islam. And so uh, I have told uh, young people on college campuses, have a women's rights day and talk about the plight of women oppressed in Islam and women who've been brutalized, beaten up or killed for, for not wanting to wear hijab and so on. And the more we do that and show up their hypocrisy, the less they'll be able to claim a moral authority in shutting us up as Islamophobes and so on.
0: Okay, so I think time to move to the audience questions. There are quite a few. And uh, let's, let's move to the questions. Before that, I request everybody to please like this video, share it around as much as you can. And also to go to the description and subscribe to our Vimers channel. Subscribe to us as well. And also support us and follow us the links are all in the description uh, rp bharat needs an anti-jihad special operations force with 21st century equipment who can work day night